you have your Bibles, open up to Ruth chapter 2. That's where we're at this morning. This is a little love story with lots of big implications when it comes to dating, relationships, marriage, and family. Uh, if you are married and trying to figure out how to make it work because you're thinking about cutting them, this is a good book for you. If you're dating and you're trying to figure out, should we keep doing this or should we call it off, this is a good book for you. If you're a parent and your kids are talking about boyfriends like mine is in fourth grade and scaring you to death, my daughter came to me the other day and she said, this guy wants to take me on a date. I said, where are you going? She said, I don't know. I said, the answer is no. She said, well, if I could answer that question. I said, the answer is still likely no. And she said, why? I was like, does he have a job? She said, he's in fourth grade. I said, exactly. Does he have a job? Is he a late bloomer or is he working yet? Some of you don't know if I'm serious or if I'm joking. That's the point. I want every young man to think, is he serious or is he joking? Is that a bad boys 2 routine that he's pulling on me? Some of you know where he's cleaning the guns as I'm showing up. Or is he serious? Has he really done prison time or just prison ministry? Or is it the same thing? I want them to wonder. I want them to wonder. Judges was a time that the book of Ruth was written. It's the book right before you'll find the book of Ruth. Uh, we're known, uh, it was a time where there was no king, and it was a time of lawlessness. It says in the book of Judges that everyone did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. So there was no law, so there was no way or no standard that people would hold each other to. And so as a result of it, you have a lawless time, and there's a famine in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, by name, is known as the house of bread, but there's no bread in Bethlehem. And so a guy named Elimelech, the first character in the story that we're introduced to, decides that in the midst of the famine that he's going to take his family and move to Moab, about 50 miles away, uh, because they needed bread. On the surface, this seems like a logical, good decision, except when you look below the surface, you realize that he's actually walking in a significant failure in his leadership of his family. Why is it a significant failure? Well, the book of Leviticus warned that when famine come, it wouldn't be by chance, it would be because of rebellion. And so when famine came, it would be a sign to the nation of Israel that it was time to repent, not a time to run. So famine comes to the land of Bethlehem, Elimelech runs and doesn't repent. And for many a man, it's been a long time since we bent our knee before God and made a declaration of dependence on God. You and I were not created to lead or live independent from God, but to live a life that is intimately acquainted and dependent upon Him. God doesn't need you to be desperate for Him in the first sinner's prayer you pray. The idea is that you would understand how desperate you are for Him, and every moment you live from that prayer, you would live in desperation upon Him moving forward. Does this make sense? So Elimelech leaves his family away because he's afraid they're going to die if they stay in Bethlehem. He doesn't repent. He runs. And guess what happens in the first six verses? He dies. Not only does he die, but Malon and Kilion, his two sons, follow in their father's footsteps. They marry Moabite women, something that was prohibited within the Levitical text that was given to the nation of Israel. Then, then they die. So now you have three widows with no future, no prospects, and no hope. It's a really difficult beginning. It's a bad beginning. It's fearful times. But what we're going to discover over four chapters is a faithful God that's at work in all of it. So Ruth uh, Naomi and Orpah, Ruth and Orpah being the uh, daughter-in-laws of Naomi, they make the walk the men wouldn't wet, make, and they walk back to Jerusalem after a decade of being away. Midway on the journey, Naomi stops Ruth and Orpah, understanding that as foreigners and as widows, that it would be very hard for them to have a restart in the nation of Israel, and it would be much easier for them just to go back home to Moab to their god, Chemish, who was a demonic god, and worship and serve him around people that would at least potentially, being one of them, give mercy to them. 
Orpah goes with the blessing of, of uh, Naomi back, but Ruth clings to Naomi, has a salvific type experience where she professes, your God will be my God, your people will be my people, where you go I will go, where you lay I will lay, I, I will not break in my covenant and commitment to walk with you forward. And so Ruth and Naomi at the end of chapter 1 walk into town and they're the talk of the town. Everyone looks at Naomi and they're like, oh, is that Naomi? Could it be Naomi? And she says, no, 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 I've already been to the DMV and I've already changed my name. It's no longer pleasant. That's what Naomi means. It's bitter. That's Mara. I'm not feeling bitter. I am bitter. I've become the embodiment of the emotion, which is bitter. But in this, in the first three verses of chapter 2, we get a lot of incredible insight into the work that God was fixing to do. Look at it with me. Ruth chapter 2 verse 1. Now, there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband Elimelech. One day Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, and as it happened, that's a, a fun Hebrew line. It's, it's essentially saying, as luck would have it. And it's a Hebrew funny. It's a statement of, God doesn't let chance happen. Israel didn't believe like in a case sarah, sarah like God was taking a nap, took a break, and, and, and that bird just happened to fall from the sky. No, the New Testament teaches that there's not a sparrow that falls from the sky that God doesn't know about. That he dresses the fields and uh, valleys with flowers, even though they wither and they go away. But he's a God of detail, that he knits you together in your mother's womb, that he numbers your days and your steps. He's a God that knows everything, which doesn't make him a bad God because everything on this side of eternity has gone bad. He's the God who knows everything, and within it allowed rebellion, and within that brought a Savior so that rebels could be made saints once again. <laughs> so there's no as it happened. It's God moving in the story. And that's the first thing I want you to understand. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. There's two primary ways in the Bible we see God move. I'll use hands to illustrate it. One hand would be the hand of miracles. And there's lots of stories where God uh, goes against the laws of nature because he made nature and does something supernatural. The nation of Israel was walking out of Egypt and they uh, faced a body of water with an entire army pressing down upon them. They were really full of faith that God was going to do something big. Like most of you are whenever you're about to see a miracle happen. Why'd you bring us out here to die, Moses? And they spoke of killing him. But God had a plan and so he intervened, parts the waters they walked through on dry land, and the strongest army in the world is crushed in an instant. God doesn't need tanks to take out armies. He doesn't need a stock of bullets to protect his people. He's a God of miracles. They get to the other side. They don't have any food. They're in a desert. They can't grow food. They are wanderers. They're pilgrims passing through. So in a need of food, guess what God does? He goes against the law of nature. He rains down food from the sky. And some of you rednecks are like, no, that ain't against the law of nature. I've been shooting food out of the sky. It's a little different, okay? It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't turkey season. It was manna season. God rained down manna, and they ate it. So God, God, God miraculously moves, and you see it visibly. And a lot of you are like, well, I would believe God if I could just see more miracles. Well, the Bible would say the opposite. There are an entire group of people that saw Jesus feed 5,000 people, then they walk around the river that Jesus walks across on, on foot, come to the other side, and their greeting to him is, 
show a miracle to us so that we can believe that you're the Son of God. There was water. I fed 5,000 of you, and we only counted the men because that's the kind of weird society we were in at that point in time. Then I walked across the water. You walked around it. I'm standing here, and you're going, give us more bread. See, a lot of you have forgotten more miracles than others will ever experience. And your lack of gratitude and your inability to see that right now your life is not just battles, but it's battles and blessings together has allowed you a limited perspective that doesn't allow you to see that right now God is at work, and it may not be in the hand of miracles that he's working, but it may be in the hand of providence that he's working. That's the second way God moves throughout the Bible, and that's what the entire book of Ruth is about. God does not intervene in a practical way, but that little word in verse 3 where it says, and it just so happens is a statement that God is nonetheless providentially at work and in control of this entire story. Providence is only seen in the rearview mirror. It's when you look in the rearview and you go, I didn't think God was there. I didn't know how we would get from there to here. But looking back on it, I can visibly see how God orchestrated people and uh, 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 stuff I needed. What's the word for it? Provisions. Praise God. Provisions. <laughs> and, and everything that was needed for us to get through it so that we could get from there, which we never thought that we'd get out of, to here and where we're at today. And I'm not praising God for the fact that I'm here, but when I look in the rear view, it reminds me that God was nonetheless there. And that's what's going on in the book of Ruth. It's a book of providence where God is at work. God is moving in the midst of an invisible way in the present time and place. But nonetheless, he's moving. The second thing in verse 2 that we see is that there's commitment. Ruth had committed and covenanted with Naomi that no matter what it took, that she was going to stay with her and by her side. And as a result, she is committed now to go into the field and to do work. Abraham Lincoln said, opportunity from God often comes in the form of something called hard work. All the older people wanted to say amen, but they're too Baptist to do so. They were praying that they'd bring their 25-year-old who's eating canned cheese, living in their basement, and sleeping on Batman sheets still, to church so that we could communicate to you that God is not denying you opportunity. It's out there in the form of job applications and hard work. Some of you think that if it requires work, God's not in it. But work exists before the fall. Before God gives Adam a wife and a family, he first puts them in the garden to what? Work. That's why I'm asking fourth graders if they work before they date my daughter. I'm just trying to be biblical. So what, what we see in this story is a woman who is committed to the word of God, and she's not afraid of a little hard work. Uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10 explains that if you're a foreigner or, or poor or a widow, she's three for three, that you can go behind and harvest season the people of God's fields, and whatever falls on the ground, known as gleanings, you can pick it up for yourself because the nation of Israel was commanded to make margin before the harvest to be generous. They weren't to harvest and then be generous. The plan came before the harvest. I, I know a lot of you don't want that takeaway, but my, my point is there's no such thing as accidental generosity. If you're going to live a generous life, you better have a plan before the harvest comes on how you're going to be generous with what God's given you. That one was free, and it deserved a lap, and it deserved an amen and a praise God, but I'll just keep going. Anyway, y'all want to be quiet. We got guests. I've got to behave. We've got a long time till Christmas where we can refill this church up, so... got to be on my best behavior. The closer we get to Christmas, the, the, the more honest I'm going to get. Verse 3. 
so, so there was a law that you were to walk behind and glean. So what we see is commitment. I can't remember what I was saying there. Providence, commitment. The third thing we see in the first three verses is answer prayers. Ruth, uh, Naomi prays this prayer of Ruth and Orpha that God would be kind, that God would provide them a new beginning. And in chapter 2, we see the beginning of this new beginning for Ruth. Now, in the middle of that, we're introduced in verse 1 and in verse 4 into the story of a man named Boaz, which means strong. It's a, a, a good name that God is going to build a strong lineage on. For some of you, you come from a bad legacy, a weak legacy. Maybe you came from a weak link. Your father didn't serve God, didn't love God, didn't honor God, and you now are looking at it going, I need a strong link to link to. Well, the good news is none of you are Boaz. And today's application of today's sermon is not be more like Boaz, because you're not. Uh, you don't live in a, like, Old Testament world, uh, you, you're not probably a wealthy landowner, although if you are, we, we need some land. So I'm just saying, if you could throw us 10 acres, that would be awesome. Just, you have not because you asked not, I'm asking. Uh, we're introduced to the Boaz, he's, he's a strong name, and if you started with a weak link or a broke link, my encouragement to you today is Jesus is a strong link, and he invites you to be reborn and linked into him. And as a strong link, you can have a new heritage and a new foundation. You do not have to be like your father and mother. You do not have to repeat their mistakes. And you can have a new legacy and a new family through him uh, because God is gracious to, in Christ, invite everyone to believe and rebuild by the Spirit in him. And so we see this answer to prayer, and we're introduced to Boaz, who is a man of character. But the application of this sermon is not, here's seven ways to be a man of character. It's, Here's seven ways that you'll see God make you a man of character when you belong to him. Y'all about to get me off the stage. Seven ways to know that God's at work in you to make you a man of character. I'm not into do it. That's religion. I'm into it's done. Now allow through submission it to be done in you. Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself daily. That's just the AC. Deny himself <laughs> I ain't got time to play with it. Uh, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So the beginning of discipleship, the beginning of becoming a new creation, the beginning of becoming the man that you aren't so that you can be the man that you need to be in Christ is submission, not effort. The effort is in you dying to yourself because you aren't helping this situation out. We don't need you to take the will. We need you to get off the will and not stop letting Jesus be a co-pilot and let him be the daggone pilot. That's what I'm trying to get at. Am I making sense? Okay, here we go. Seven characteristics of a godly man. Uh, husbands, men who have children, you should, act, you should probably look at this and go, man, am I this kind of man because my daughter may marry or rebel against the kind of man that I am? Uh, dads, you, moms, you may want to look at this and go, man, is this the kind of man she's dating? Because if not, you know, like, she still lives under her house. We still get a little bit of a tax break, but it is not a break even. And as long as they live under our house, apparently we have some sort of influence. I heard back in the day that parents once had over their kids. And who they dated. So you may want to think, can they date them? Uh, single ladies, you may want to consider, is this the man that I'm considering dating? Not like, is he sort of like that? We're not looking for lukewarm, we're looking for Boaz. We're not looking for a guy that checked the box Christian, we're looking for a guy that bears the fruit of Christ. There's a big difference. A lot of y'all out here running around in the, in the South, I'm Christian, uh, let's look at the fruit. Ain't nothing Christian about anything that just happened this weekend. You're like a rapper at the Grammys that's standing up on Sundays giving him props for the song about a girl's butt that you sang on Friday. He wants none of the glory for that. He does not objectify women. He 
values women. They're his daughters. He seats them at his table. And I know I'm being tough, and I don't want to beat men up. I want to build men up. But at the end of the day, some of you, it's your cowardice and your inability to be passionate about the right things and to fight the fight that you were actually created to fight that continues to keep our society in a position that's saying they don't need you because so many of you are absent from your home as dads. Maybe you're present, but you're absent spiritually. You're not engaged emotionally. We need you to be godly men. And I, I get on these soapboxes. You can ask some people that have been here more than a week. And, and, and I preach hard and challenge you to become the men that Christ has called you to be because if Jesus has risen from the dead and the same power that raised him from the dead lives in you, then what, are you, what is keeping you from becoming the man of God but your own selfish desires and inability to die to yourself to become who God has called you to be? All right, verse 4. Man of character, man of character. Number one, I want you to see that Boaz was a faithful man. I can't get to verse four because that's in verse one. It says it in verse one. There was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. What, what do we know? He's a wealthy man. He, in the time of famine, hadn't run, but he had stayed and God has blessed him. We don't know details on how he got his fields, but we know that it wasn't in an unethical way that he got these fields. We know that he's going to handle things moving forward in an ethical way in his business handling. So he's a faithful man. Elimelech runs, Boaz stays. How does Boaz endure? We don't know. Does Boaz lead repentance in his village as a man of leadership? We don't know. But what we know is that he didn't run from the people of God in the presence of God when times got hard. Elimelech ran in famine, Boaz stayed. Boaz trusted God in his thriving, and he trusted God in his suffering. Men, do you trust God in your suffering? Or you only trust him when you thrive? Do, do you trust God in your living and in your dying? Or do you only trust him when you have your health? You see, faith is proven in difficult times. There is a beautiful thing that God does with pain on this side of eternity. If you are in Christ, pain is not appointed to destroy you. It's not going to separate you from God, but it's something that God will use on this side of eternity to make you, to root you into a deeper dependency upon God. God's intent, his desire, would be that you, in difficult times, would cling tighter to him and value him and grow in your love and adoration of him so that your faith would root deep in your pain. And there will be a glorious fruit that will be born out of your pain. There's three generations that have come up since my generation. There's the boomers, and then there's this generation that we call the what? The great generation. Do you know why they were called the great generation? Because they went through a lot of pain. Stock market crashes, two world wars, difficult times with getting food on the table and finding jobs that they could have. But that pain produced great faith and revival and a backbone in our country that we don't see in all the prosperity and wealth of a lot of us that have options to run around and do whatever we want to do. So God is just an optional God that we turn to whenever everything's good. You see, what God is looking for is a people that would recognize that he's a treasure. He doesn't need you to recognize that you're not worthy of him. He already knows that. But he's a treasure, and he offers himself to whosoever would believe. He offers himself to anyone that would turn to him. So what he's looking for is not you going, I don't, I'm not worthy of you. I'm going to stay away. I'm going to run away. I've done things. I've been. He saw it all, and he still sent Jesus. It's not an indictment on you. It's an indictment on your inability to see that the blood is really enough to pay for you. Which should bring you running home, not running away. Boaz is faithful. He doesn't run from God or the people of God. He runs to God in the presence of God. Whenever everybody else ran away from Bethlehem, he stayed. Faithful men 
stay. Ladies, let me be very clear. If he's unfaithful in dating, it's a habit that likely is not going to die at I do. Many of you have prioritized chemistry and dating over character, and you're in a position now where you're paying the penance for ignoring character in the dating cycle. Boaz was faithful, number one. Number two, what I want you to see is that Boaz, was, uh, Boaz genuinely loved God. He genuinely loved God. There are a lot of guys in dating that love you so much that they love God. What do I mean by that? They love you, and so to convince you that you should stay with them, they in word love God. But Jesus said you'll know them by their what? Fruit. And you can tell the difference between a man that loves God and a man that doesn't are only in word. If they are at Death Valley on a Saturday, losing their mind over a football game, screaming and charismatic about it, and then they come into church and they tell you they're just not charismatic about Jesus. Now, let me, let me explain something very clear. And someone's going to get mad, but Christmas is coming. We'll fill it back up. Here's my point. <laughs> let me be very clear. What they have is an idol issue. They're charismatic about football, but not charismatic about God, because they love football more than they love God. David wasn't like one type of man that danced before the Lord, and then there were a lot of other types. No, David was a man that was after God's own, and then there's a lot of men who weren't. <laughs> Welcome to Four Points. <laughs> this is my point. Do you genuinely love God? Look, look at this. Boaz shows up, and I want you to think about where he's going. Number four, verse four. While she was there in the field working, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. Okay, where's Boaz at? He's at work. Where do most of us contradict the faith that we hold on Sundays? I, I, I preached for 13 years in California, in Bakersfield, and we had a lot of oil field workers. And on lunch, when they had a disagreement, they would walk off the oil field property and handle it and then go back to work. Oil field workers were known as having the worst mouse in the world. They cuss like sailors or whatever you want to call it all the time. I had plenty of them tell me all the time that I love Jesus, my mouth is just trying to catch up. What they had in this process, and there's grace and there's mercy, is they had a compartmentalized faith. Jesus mattered and his presence was in their mind there at church but he wasn't standing with them at work. Therefore, swearing and acting like a fool was an option. There's a big difference when you realize Jesus isn't like staying in your compartments. His intention is to be in all of your life. And so the idea here is Boaz shows up to work just like he would have on the Sabbath, and his greeting is godly. Look at the greeting that he gets back from his co-workers. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, the harvesters reply, which is a traditional greeting that you find in the book of Numbers. He's brought faith to work, and he doesn't care what county council says about it. For him, this is a non-negotiable. If you want to outlaw business because I bring my faith and my God into my work, outlaw away. Do whatever you must, but deny God I will not. He loves God so much that he cannot stop talking about him. He's brought him into the workplace. This dude really loves God. A question we all should ask ourselves as men is, are we really a worshiper of God or are we a worshiper of things? The question is not, are you worshiping? The question is, what are you worshiping? We all worship something with adoration and passion and fervor. We worship it. No one tells us we have to. We choose to. 
It's because everyone, male and female, created in the image of God, was created to worship God. But Romans tells us that we have, instead of worshiping God, worshiped creation and made an idol out of it, putting it in God's position in all of our lives. So you didn't cease worshiping because you're not charismatic about it at church. You ceased worshiping because you were an idolater outside of church and you don't think God is worthy of the same kind of passion within it. It's a big difference. Are you a real worshiper and lover of God? you're dating this guy and he's like, I'm Christian, but I don't go to church, but once a month. Okay. I work on my truck the rest of the time. We found the idol and he will continue to prioritize his God over you and lead your family to do the same. If you continue to walk in the path with him, you ain't got to like me. I'm a redneck. We can fight. But let me be clear. There's, there's no, Jesus is returning, and this lukewarm craft that we have in the South, that men are calling themselves godly men by checking a box a couple of times a year, not pursuing Jesus, not running after him, and we call it Christian, like, I'm in fear for you that you're going to stand before a holy God real soon, and when you do, you're going to have convinced yourself because you checked the boxes and grew up culturally in a church that you're going to be in, and you're going to hear from him, depart from me, for I never knew you, because Matthew 25 is filled with a whole group of people, many of them men, who thought they were fine, and they had a complacency towards God and a lukewarmness about God, and they bore no fruit that was from God in their life that should have shown them that they were not of God and they needed to repent and turn to God, but they didn't, and now they stand before him on the last day, and it's too late, and it's over. Because no preacher would get up and offend a man or call a man out about being lukewarm about God and worshiping an idol. No. No, your love for other idols needs to be buried so that your love of God can grow. Boaz was faithful. Boaz loved God. Number three, Boaz was obedient. He was obedient. Look at verses five to seven. Then Boaz asked his foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? He's essentially saying, how does she get single? Why is she out here? Which is what godly men do. They come along and they see a woman of God and they're like, wait, how's every man walking past her and not asking for her number? How's she not getting invited to Bible study every night of the week? Like, what's going on? <laughs> Let me remind you, you're not looking for a few men. You're looking for one man. You're looking for a godly man, women. And the point is, is that most men don't qualify. Because there's one man that God will send who will. In the meantime, it's your job to be faithful, love, and wait on the Lord to do so. Look at what it says. The foreman replied, verse 6, She is the young woman of Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes of rest in the shelter. In the shelter. Notice what's happening. Boaz has made margin in his harvest to be obedient to the, the call of Leviticus. Leviticus called him to let the widow and the poor harvest behind his harvesters with the gleanings, and he's being obedient to the word of God. My point is, God's word for Boaz was directive and not suggestive. God's word for Boaz was directive. God says it in his word. We wrestle with its meaning. We understand it, and we put it into play in our life. So when it says in Leviticus 19 to make margin for the poor in our lives and in our harvest, we make margin because we're people of God, which means we're people of the book, of the word of God, and we put it into play in our life. 
Many of you are not God's messengers, you're God's editors. You've been doing a really good job of doing what Satan does, twisting, manipulating, and proof-texting the Bible to fit your life and to mold into the life that you want to live. That's not what God gave you the word for. The word of God is given so that it would rebuke you. That's a good thing. It's not because God's mean, it's because he's a good dad. And he wants to correct you so that you don't live a substandard life, but a full life in Christ Jesus. And in order to do that, he gave you his word so that we would understand our need for Jesus, the ethics that we're called to as a follower of Jesus. And by the Spirit of God, we would walk in that ethic and love of Jesus to be the people of God that he's called us to be through the scriptures. The question for you, though, is this God's word being ignored in your life? Are you editing it out? Are you ignoring the parts that make you uncomfortable, that call you out? I'm not here for you to save face. Look, at the end of the day, and I'm, I'm, let's just go ahead and like really either make you at home or help you find the door. At the end of the day, either we can save face or we can save your butt. And I'm not here for you to save face. I could care less about you saving face. In fact, the best thing that could happen is that some of you would lose your face so that you could have your butt saved before God. I love you enough in the Word of God to tell you that. All right, moving on. Christmas is coming. Boaz was obedient. Boaz loved God. Boaz was faithful because God was at work in him. Number four, Boaz was kind. He was kind. He hears about Ruth. He understands what she's there to do. So he goes over, verse 8, and he says, Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other field. Stay right here behind the young women at work in my field. So if you were a widow or poor, you would have to go field to field to get enough to make it through the dry season. What Boaz is saying is, don't bounce around. We're not going to run you off whenever we think you've gotten your field from our field. Instead, you stay here. And as long as we are harvesting, you can glean behind us the entire time. On top of that, look at what he goes on to say. He says, stay right behind the young women working in the field. Verse 9, see which part of the field they are harvesting, and then follow them, which was discouraged. The harvesters wanted you to stay away. After we're done with the field, you can have it, but not while we're in the field. And he's saying, no, as they're harvesting, you walk just in a short distance behind them and gather up all you need. And on top of that, uh, he said, uh, and, then, and then follow them, I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly, and uh, when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water that they have drawn from the well, which would have been a long walk that she would have to take, which would have been a long break, which would have taken away from the time that she could have harvested. So in all of this, what we see is that Boaz was kind. Now, when I was growing up, when I was growing up, if you wanted to let a girl know that you liked her, you were a jerk to her. Some of you never graduated from this, and you're wondering why you're still single or why she doesn't like you much or never wants to cuddle at night. What worked in third grade isn't going to work in adulthood, okay? And so pulling her hair and saying mean things to her and, you know, like, trying to make her jealous, like, that, that doesn't work. And what's funny is it's a joke about, like, you know, trying to make her jealous or something like that. But some of you, you do that in your marriage. And you're like, why don't we trust each other? I don't know, because you're running around on each other trying to get other people's attention so that the person you're trying to get the attention from will give you attention. Sounds like a dysfunctional way to get attention to me. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Not laughing because it's hurting too much? Is that what's going on in the church? Here, here's, here's my point. Boaz is not a jerk to her. He doesn't tell her to go on or she's had her fill. He's not worried about what she may ask of him in a future time. Instead, he says, stay here and let me lighten your burden. He empathizes with her. He's kind. Men, are you kind? Are you a safe man for other people to be around? Are you a safe man? Are you unkind, unrelenting 
It's the anger that your father instilled in you in his example. Disallowed you to be empathetic, compassionate, gracious, merciful, or in your mind, weak to others. The only true man we know that walked out biblical manhood perfectly is a guy named Jesus. He was both tough and tender. Men, do you know how to be tough? Do you know how to be tender? Many of us only do one or the other. Perhaps you had a father that was only tough, never tender. So you struggle here. That's why we need Jesus. Because Jesus is tender and he's tough. For some of you, you had a dad that was only tender. He never stepped in. He never intervened. He never laid down the law. And as a result of it, you don't know how to take correction. And you stay in the same cycles of underperformance in your life over and over again because no one was ever tough enough to love you enough to discipline you to grow up. Well, the good thing is we have Jesus, and he is both tender and tough. That was free. All right. Number five. Got to move. Boaz honored Ruth. He was kind to Ruth. He honored Ruth. Look at verse 11. It says this, yes, I know, Boaz replied. Oh, excuse me. At the end of verse 10, Ruth, hearing him say, stay in my field, says, why have you, what, what have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I'm only a foreigner. Verse 11, yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. Here's what's crazy. He hears and knows her story. She's a widow. She's poor. She has nothing. And he doesn't see it as a demarcation. He sees it as a reason for celebration. This is what a man of honor does. They don't see you with worldly eyes. They see you with kingdom eyes. They don't tear you down. They build you up. That's what Ephesians 5 calls us to as husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We call that a commandment. Having given up his life for her, having cleansed her with the washing of the water and the... Jesus doesn't speak condemnation to his bride. He doesn't remind her about her, ba her bad past or her harlotry or the moment she fell short. He speaks life to her. He speaks about who she's becoming, not where she's been. He builds her up. He honors the fact that by the grace of God, she's becoming something that she's not been because God's at work in it. And when you meet a man of God, they don't tear down with their words. That means that they have an identity problem going on within them. They don't feel secure within and of themselves, so they cannot deal with a secure woman around themselves. So as a result of it, instead of honoring the uniqueness of what you are in Christ Jesus, they dishonor you by making you normal, which means they can't be your husband and they can't be your spouse if you're dating. If you're married, we've got work to do. We've got work to do. And God's a miracle working God. And I'm convinced that I'm going to have to sit down and write about what it looks like to be married to a spouse that doesn't believe, because the Bible gives lots of advice on that that's not been preached very often within church. But if you're dating this guy, and he doesn't understand that you're uniquely and fearfully and wonderfully made in the presence of God, that's called a character red flag. You should not proceed. Do not pass go. Don't collect $200, and don't let them talk you out of it. Boaz honored Ruth for who she was instead of dishonoring her. Number six, Boaz pursued Ruth. We see that in verse 14. Came to the time of dinner at mealtime. Boaz called to her, come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in sour wine. So she ate with the harvesters and Boaz. And he gave her some of his roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and even had some left over. Here's my point. 
uh, it's your job, men, to pursue. Like, some, this is a big debate. Like, in the, like, you know, feminism teaches woman in front, man behind. Like, yeah, we can do anything you can do. Okay, like, within some reason, you're equally in value to God, but we're distinct in our roles. The Bible's clear about that, and we can argue all we want to about it. You're not any less valuable women or men before God. You're all given the image of God. But how God made you, whether you like it or not, is distinct in its role. And we're called to live in the hand, under the hand of God for the glory of God. So feminism would teach woman in front, man behind. Uh, chauvinism would teach man in front, woman behind. Uh, biblical teaching teaches man and woman at each other's side. Eve was taken out of the side of Adam. They saw each other and then they but They were joined together. So when you get married, you literally walk out what? Side to side. When you go and face life on the other side of I do, guess what you face it with? You're supposed to be side to side. Some of you are back to back. Like, we're just fighting and throwing grenades at each other. <laughs> like, you know, just having a... But the idea is that whatever comes, we're side to side, and Jesus joins us together, fills us with the Spirit, and we then take on whatever comes together as the people of God side to side. And so let me be very clear. Men, it's your job, not in a creepy way, but in a godly way, to know about who this woman is, to pursue a godly woman. It says, he who finds a wife finds what is... And that's not old school, that's called the Bible, which means it's timeless. So no matter what new school tells you, if the timeless Bible says that this is what you're called to, and you're like, but I don't, I'm afraid she's going to turn me down, and then you're not worthy to sit at the table with her. Well, I can just sit here and swipe right all day. Yeah, you can find a bunch, but you will not find a one. I mean, I, I, I know God works in mysterious ways, and some of you started in a honky-tonk, and you've ended up in a church, and we're praising God that he worked in it, but it doesn't give you permission if you're dating to go and do the same thing and expect God to intervene in your mess. I'm having fun today up in this house. It's like Life Class 101 with a Bible instead of Oprah. It's great. It might actually help you. So he... he Invites her to dinner. Does he invite her to dinner one-on-one? No, that wouldn't be culturally accepted. That may be a little bit too much. He's already asked about her. He's already gotten a reputation. And then he invites her to dinner in a group date, a group date with a bunch of dudes. Now, a <laughs> little weird, okay? But it, but it worked. They, they got to talk. They got to know each other a little bit more. He pursued her. He was assertive. He wasn't aggressive, and he wasn't passive. For some of you, the reason you're single is not because God isn't good and not because God hasn't provided a suitor out there for you. It's because you're too busy playing Xbox to pursue someone else. So turn your digital world off, stop growing a flipping farm that you can't eat, and, go, and like take a shower, have a shave, get a job, buy a belt, and go and ask her out. Sorry. Boaz, Boaz was generous. The last thing I want you to see, Boaz was generous. He starts with letting her stay behind the harvesters, but by the very end of the story, verses 15, 16, it says when Ruth went back to work again, he ordered his young man, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her. Don't keep her at a distance. Let her come right up and pull out some of the heads of the barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Whoops. It's from Boaz. We got his back. Whoops from Boaz. We got his back. Yeah. Get you some good friends like these friends, right? Like, they're like, hey, just want you to know that whole row, Boaz sent it. He said, you're welcome. 
Don't give her a hard time. Don't give her a hard time. Be generous to her. In this text, we see two big things in chapter 2 that we'll land the plane on. The first is favor. This is a, a chapter of favor. Favor, by definition, means getting unusually above what is required. It's when you're due something, but what you receive is way beyond your due. This is what every single one of you are in Christ Jesus. You're favored. God has given you way more than you were due. You didn't earn salvation. You weren't due salvation. Jesus gave you salvation. Be grateful, right? You've been favored. You, you, you didn't earn the right to be a parent. It wasn't due to you to be a parent. God wasn't obligated to make you a parent. He chose to give you kids and bless you and make you a parent. You're favored. Oh, this is good, ain't it? You don't, you're not, didn't deserve to be born in America where you could have a job. I mean, you could have a job this week, go and find a competitor that'll pay you a dollar more next week in this world right now. And then the next week, go find another one that'll pay you another dollar. I'm not saying you ethically should do this. I'm just saying you're in demand. You can put food on the table in a number of ways. Because God has favored you and blessed you to live where you live in the time and place in which you would live so that you could give glory to God and honor God. You have been favored. Having left in the morning, hoping that someone might show her favor, Ruth returned not with a few leftovers, but weighed down by an abundance of barley and ephah. Verse 17 says that she gathered an entire ephah of barley. How much is that? It's three-fifths a bushel. Some of you are like, that doesn't help. It's 22 liters. Some of you are like, I'm terrible with that. It doesn't help. Or five gallons. Still didn't help it. Let me explain it this way. The value of an ephah of barley was about half a month's wage in one day. That's generous. That's favor. And it's not just from Boaz. It's from God, who's the Lord of the harvest. The second thing I want you to see of this chapter is it's a chapter of hope. By verse 20, Ruth comes in after the mill with the harvesters and Boaz with all of the grain. And Naomi, remember, she's not pleasant. That was her original name. She's now Mara, which means sees Ruth come in and here's about what happens. And here's her response. May the Lord bless him. That Boaz. I knew Elimelech had some good people in his family. He, I just got the wrong one. May the Lord bless him. Naomi told her daughter-in-law, he is showing who? The Lord. He is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family's redeemers, which we'll jump into next week. Here's what's awesome. Essentially, Naomi is sitting at home all day and she's like, he ain't good. He doesn't care. God isn't present. He has dealt harshly with me. He's not just. He's not fair. Ruth hits the door. And immediately she goes, I knew he was good. I knew he was just. I knew he was fair. I knew he cared. How often is this the case in our life? Where we don't hope, but then our life is circumvented by a moment of God's interaction and then we have nothing but hope that comes out of us. It's like reading the Psalms. One Psalm, David writes, how long, O Lord, will you forsake me? How long, O Lord? And the next is, God is great and he is good and he's always faithful and he triumphs over the enemy. And this is the way life works and the remedy for the gaps is this thing called hope. Hope is remembering what God has done so that you, knew, you don't lose sight in what he's yet to do and walk into a place of hopelessness. So I hope because what he has done gives me reason to hope that he'll continue to do it. There's this old hymn that was written and it says this, that old hymn uh, by John Newton. It says, 
His love in times past forbids me to think that he'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. I got hope. And can he have taught me to trust his name and this far have brought me to put me to shame? No, no, no. I have hope. Hope not that it'll all work out because, you know, God's out there. Hope because God's been here. And he led me from there to here. And where I'm at today and where I'm going tomorrow will be marked by the same presence and the same power and the same God and the same leader. Because the good news for us in the house today is he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He does not change. You change, but he doesn't change. You run from him and then you run to him. He doesn't change. His value doesn't diminish or decrease on the basis of the stock market and doesn't increase in a season of harvest and good. He is good. He is great. He is God. He is love. And he is near. And he has offered himself to whosoever would believe to him, in him, in the name of Jesus. Jesus, inviting you and I into relationship with him. So today, we got our prayer team here, and if you do not know Jesus, the start to becoming a man of character begins with you bending your knee to Jesus. Real men start with Jesus. And if you want to become a godly man, it starts with being a Christ-filled man, a forgiven man. And if that's something you need to do, we invite you to humbly leave your seat and your face in the seat, and bring your behind down here, and do what you know you need to do. Period. Do it. As we stand, if you need to bend your knee and pray, we invite you to the altar to do so. For some of you, you need to sing because you've come into your, this house this morning asking God of a lot of things, but you've yet to thank Him for anything. Last I checked, the psalm says, enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Before you ask God for anything, thank Him for everything. So for some of you, praise is befitting. For some of you, repentance is befitting. For some of you, surrender is befitting. The Spirit's moving. You move as the Lord leads in Jesus' name. Amen.